We've been walking through the, the narrative uh, of Joseph in the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, and we'll continue that today. We're nearing the end, in case you're curious about, I've had a couple of people ask me, how much longer are we going to be in the story of Joseph? After today, there's three more messages, and we will complete the book of Genesis, right? We'll get all the way through the end uh, of Genesis chapter 50. There will be two Sundays where we have to pause in our Joseph series. We'll pause for Easter Sunday, and, and I'll do a particular resurrection-themed message on that morning, and then there's a Sunday late in April when I'll be out of town, and so uh, we'll have uh, Greg Fields uh, preaching for us that morning, Lord willing, and so uh, those two Sundays we have to pause, but only three messages remaining in the Joseph narrative. So by the end of April, we will have completed this and we'll be on to, uh, to something new. So if that gives you a little bit of uh, peace of mind, I don't know, just to know the lay of the land coming up. There's a narrative shift in chapter 46 of Genesis. We've been focusing, of course, on the life of Joseph and the ways that God has led him and prepared him to be in the place and time and have the resources to protect and preserve many people alive to keep a remnant for you, he said to his brothers in chapter 45. So we've been following what's going on with Joseph. In chapter 45 that we looked at last week, he finally revealed his identity to his brothers whom he had been testing over a period of several months. He revealed his identity and they were reconciled to each other. It was a beautiful, powerful image of Christian forgiveness and love and community among the family of God. And now he's, he's sent his brothers back to Canaan to get their father and come back to Egypt. And as chapter 46 begins, uh, we return to Jacob as a central player. He was a huge part of the narrative of Genesis leading up to Joseph's story. And indeed, the Joseph story begins, these are the generations of Jacob. So really, just a reminder, the last 14 chapters of Genesis are the story of Jacob's descendants, and it's happened to focus on Joseph for a while. But back at the middle of the drama is Jacob himself, who God has renamed Israel and made these, reiterated these covenant promises to him, you will become a great nation, and your children, your descendants will be my covenant people. And so... Jacob becomes a central player. The themes of covenant and the promised seed, the promised offspring, return to prominence in the story. And so it's good just to know as we begin to tell this part of the story that the, the lens is zooming out a little bit and we're getting back in touch with what is that broad story that the book of Genesis is telling concerning not just Jacob even, but Abraham's family and the promises that God has made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and, uh, and throughout. With Joseph and his brothers now reconciled and Jacob having now learned that Joseph is alive, the pieces are in place for Jacob and his family to take the next major step in God's plan to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to build the people of Israel into a nation. The passage we'll look at today goes about halfway into chapter 47, and there's two main sections of it. The first one is Israel traveling to Egypt, and the second half of it roughly is Israel settling in Egypt. So those are the two narrative banners over the, the portion of the text that we will cover today. 
So look with me at verses 1 to 4 as Jacob begins his journey to Egypt. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So we start with the detail that Jacob stops in the town of Beersheba. And if you've been reading Genesis throughout, this would sound familiar to you. Beersheba is the southernmost town in the land of Canaan. Canaan being the place, the land that God promised that he would give to Abraham and his descendants. So Jacob has been living in Canaan, the promised land, and now he's departing the promised land, headed south to Egypt. And so Israel, Jacob, stops here for the night in Beersheba, as far south as he can get without leaving the promised land. And perhaps you could sense in that a little bit of trepidation on his part to be leaving the land that God told him and his fathers that he would give to them. Beersheba is the place where back in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham had had a dispute with some Philistines and they ended up making a covenant with one another uh, at a well and they named the town Beersheba. And then in Genesis chapter 26, almost the same kind of thing happened with Abraham's son Isaac, where again there was a conflict with some Philistines and they made a covenant there, reiterated that this place was Beersheba, and, uh, and that's where apparently they had lived for some years uh, when, uh, until Jacob departed in chapter 28. Remember, he had gotten sideways with his own brother Esau and had to kind of flee for his life because Esau was after him, and he fled to Padan Aram, and where he left from was Beersheba in Genesis chapter 28. So now, as he begins his journey down to Egypt, he stops here in this historically significant town, for his own father and grandfather and the work that God had done among their family in that place. And you'll notice specifically that the God of his father Isaac is mentioned. So we're being clued in to look backward. Let's remember the context of where this is. It's not just a random town. This is where God has been at work keep making and keeping promises for this family for generations now. And while he's there, verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And it's been a very long while since we've seen God appear and speak to anyone in this family, right? Jacob had, had heard from God directly years and years ago on his journey in Padan Aram, but it's been years. Joseph received these kind of prophetic dreams, but it was not in the same sense. God hadn't appeared to Joseph and told him what was going to happen and reiterated the promises and things like that. He didn't have quite the same kind of interactions uh, with, with Joseph. But here, God is appearing in a vision in the night to Jacob and speaking to him directly. He calls his name twice, Jacob, Jacob. He says, here I am. And then God reminds him, 
of the faith heritage from which Jacob comes, right? I am God, the God of your father. He's reminding him, I'm not just your God, I'm also the God of, of your father. And then he reassures him, do not be afraid. He, would be, he has reason, perhaps, to fear. I'm leaving the place where God promised that we would live forever, and now I'm going down to Egypt. He says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For, he gives two reasons not to be afraid. Number one, I will go down with you. So I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. You're not leaving my presence by going down into Egypt. I am going there with you. And number two, there, and this is new information, there I will make you into a great nation. So God had told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before that he would make them into a great nation. But here we have the added detail that Jacob had never heard before, that it is in Egypt that he will make Israel into a great nation. That's a new piece of the puzzle. So he reassures Jacob, this is all part of the plan. You're not leaving the promised land and going to Egypt because something went awry. You are right where you're supposed to be. Don't be afraid. I am going with you. That is the place where you will become a great nation. And he gives him this assurance, I will go down with you and I will bring you up again. And I think there's a few ways that that phrase could be taken, where he says, I will bring you up again. First of all, personally, I think he's telling Jacob, you're not going to be buried in Egypt. He says, Joseph's hand will close your eyes. In other words, yes, you should expect that you will die while you're in Egypt, but you're not going to be there forever. I will, you will be buried in your promised land with your fathers, and indeed we find that to be the case at the conclusion of the book of Genesis. We'll get there later. But so I think that's one thing he's saying. You will not be buried in Egypt. You will be buried in Canaan, in the promised land. I think corporately, speaking of that great nation that they're to become while they're there, that's a foreshadowing of the great deliverance, the great exodus that they would make from Egypt out of bondage 400 years later. Because knowing the context of this story and that the book of Exodus follows right after this, we're aware that God is going to make of them a great nation in Egypt, and then they're going to be enslaved there. They're going to be in bondage in Egypt for some 400 years under the rule of a new pharaoh down the way who doesn't know Joseph. So we have this context, and we know kind of where this is headed. Jacob doesn't understand all that right now. So all he's saying here in this kind of vague foreshadowing kind of way is, I will bring you up again. And I think we can be clued in there. He's got in his mind that he will bring the people of Israel back from Egypt into the land that he's promised to Jacob and his fathers. And so the promises have not been nullified. He's not forgotten about those things. This is exactly what I'm planning to do. And could it be... I will bring you up again, is even a reference to resurrection. Even the knowledge that when you die and your body is buried, that's not the end of your story. Because we read in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that Jacob and these other patriarchs had in mind that there was a city that they hadn't yet reached and that they died in faith, not yet having received that which was promised. And so they knew that there was a future city and life coming. So perhaps I will bring you up again as even a veiled reference to his 
resurrection in the future. Not sure. But pause and just give glory to God for the kindness of a covenant reminder like this. This is a big, scary journey that Jacob and all his family are taking down into Egypt. And God pauses here and meets with him just to reassure him, hey, don't forget who I am. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget the promises that I've made to you and to your father and your grandfather. The story is not over. I am going here with you. Romans 8.16 describes the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit in this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. On our sojourn outside of Eden, outside of the promised land, and on our way to the new Jerusalem, the Lord gives us these reminders that we belong to him and we will safely make it home. We need these reminders. We need to remind one another of these truths. And when the Lord, by his spirit alive in us, testifies to us, you belong to me. No matter what you walk through, no matter what you feel, no matter if you feel alone, the story's not over. I am with you. I will bring you safely home. This is a good, precious ministry of the Holy Spirit to his people. Well, having visited and reassured Jacob of his presence and purposes, Jacob sets out on the journey. And the next few verses provide a short summary of the main action of this chapter. It's very simple. Look at verses 5 to 7. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So, essentially, chapter 46, or at least the first half of chapter 46, can be summarized just like that. Jacob and all of his people and all of his belongings went to Egypt, period, the end. But there's some focal points, there are some themes that are emphasized that we need to pay attention to. Notice the emphasis on Jacob's offspring. Remember the seed, the promised seed, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when God had said to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. And then when he promised to Abraham that there would be a seed, an offspring, right, that would bring salvation, and bring blessing to the nations. That is the seed, the offspring we've been tracing throughout the book of Genesis. And so here, as Jacob is traveling to Egypt, we have this repeated emphasis, this repeated mention of the offspring, the sons, the daughters of Jacob. It speaks of the sons of Israel and their little ones, and Jacob and all his offspring with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters. And then that final summary statement, Jacob and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt, right? So 
This is what's happening. It's the, it's the family line continuing. God is blessing those promises, keeping covenant with his people, and all the offspring of Jacob, promised so long ago, are going with him into Egypt to meet with Joseph, right? That's what we expect we'll read about next. We think we'll get to verse 8, and we're going to read about the reunion that we've been waiting for for chapters and chapters, but the narrative grinds to a screeching halt to do a roll call of all of Israel's family members. Verses 8 to 27, and these become some of our favorite passages of Scripture, don't they? The difficulties we have trying to even pronounce most of these names. And if you're honest, and when you're going through your Bible reading plan and you come to a passage like this, don't you just skim it a little bit and just, okay. Hey, look, story resumed. Let's go there. We've all done it, all right? But here we are, verses 8 through 27 is a pause on the narrative and a recounting, a roll call of all the company of Jacob that are entering Egypt. Let's look at these verses. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Just be patient with me as I butcher all these names. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. You might remember that story back in 38. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, to whom, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Haber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jazer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Whew. Okay, we made it. Why the grandkid roundup here? Why do we stop and spend this much time looking through all of the names of Jacob's various family members? In terms of the Genesis narrative of Israel's history and the setting of the stage for redemptive history to unfold, the settling of Israel in Egypt is monumental. 
So Moses, the author, doesn't want to just brush past it. He went to Egypt, and then he saw Joseph hurrah there in Egypt. He wants us to mark this. Let's consider this. Who is going with him? It is a transition from one era to another era, the era of the patriarchs giving way to what will be the Mosaic era. The scene is shifting. The stage is being set for Israel to grow into a nation in Egypt, which will lead ultimately to their enslavement there under a new king who doesn't know Joseph, which will lead to the great biblical theological development of their release from bondage through the work of a deliverer. Moses is cluing his readers in. Don't miss the historical and redemptive significance of the shift that's happening here. This isn't merely a father being reunited with his long-lost son. It's a people being established in accordance with the promises of Yahweh to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're slowing down, we're zooming out, we're getting the context. We're setting the, the, the stage here. This is not just Jacob and Joseph's story. This is a much bigger story than that. And the shadow of the great emancipator is cast over all of it. Not Moses, but the one that Moses would point to. Jesus Christ, the great deliverer of his people. All of this is setting the scene, setting the stage for that great work of redemption yet to come. Israel's sons and grandsons are not listed chronologically by birth order here. They're arranged by their mothers, by the wives of Jacob and each of their servants who were given to them. Several uh, children were born to each of them. So the list goes like this. First we get Leah, that's Jacob's first wife, and her servant Zilpah. So we get all the, the sons born to Leah and some of their descendants, and the sons born to her servant Zilpah and some of their descendants. Then we get Rachel, who in interestingly is mentioned first. All of the, the others, it gives you all the descendants, and it says these were the sons of Leah. With Rachel, actually, if you look in verse 19, Rachel's mentioned before the descendants. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. Maybe just as an expression of Jacob's affection for Rachel. But we get the sons of Rachel and then the sons of her servant, Bilhah. So that's the way it's organized. In case you're going, wait, that's not the order that I thought, you know, Judah was the firstborn and all this kind of stuff. That's because they're not arranged here in birth order. And I want to point out something. Uh, Sam Amadi, a, a pastor and theologian who did his doctoral work in the Joseph narrative, points this out. The repetition of number, the number seven and variations of the number seven in this uh, genealogy. So Leah, the first wife of Jacob, and the descendants born to her were 33, right? It says that in verse 15. Altogether, his sons and daughters numbered 33. And then Zilpah, Leah's servant, all of her descendants were 16, 33 and 16, that's Leah and Zilpah's sons together, equal 49, which is seven sets of seven, right? Seven times seven is 49. When you get down to Rachel, we see Joseph and Benjamin, and then the children of Joseph, and, and, these, and so down in verse 22, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. What's 14? That's two sets of seven. And then Rachel's servant, Bilhah, she bore seven persons in all, all right? So that's one set of seven, just seven. So all of these 
names are arranged in such a way that they'll total some grouping of seven. And we know that seven is a biblically significant number because it pictures fullness. It pictures completion. It pictures perfection. And all of that summarized at the very end of this in verse uh, 27 The sons of Joseph who were born in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were what? Seventy. What's that? Ten sets of seven, right? If seven is fullness, what is seven times ten? It's the whole thing. And so there's a couple of things that are significant about that. Number one, just the totality of Israel is represented here. All the people that represent the, pe- the covenant people of God are right here on this list and on this journey. The whole people of Israel are accounted for here. And all the offspring of Jacob is traveling to Egypt. But there's another meaning here where if you were to think back to Genesis chapter 10, where we read about the generations of Noah. There's what's often called the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, and it's the descendants of Noah and the various nations that that come from his descendants and are dispersed around the world. And there are 70 nations mentioned in that chapter. So the list of the descendants of Noah, remember the sort of fresh start, the new humanity after the flood, the generations of Noah and that table of nations were 70 nations. Now, as Jacob, Israel, is going into Egypt with his 70 descendants, what we have here is a new humanity. This is where God is now focusing all of his redemptive work. This is the new people of God. God is establishing for himself a people through Jacob whom he will mediate uh, his presence and blessing to the world. This people, excuse me, will mediate his presence and blessing to the world. And ultimately, God would dwell with them in peace and safety forever. So there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. And if you skim right past it without any thought, there's, there's details that we, that we miss and insights that we don't see. So this company of 70 then represents the new humanity that God is establishing for himself. And all of them are now going into Egypt with Jacob. Well, with the company of Israel thusly accounted for, the narrative is ready to move forward. And we come finally to the long-awaited reunion of father and son. Look at verses 28 through 30. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. This is just a beautiful moment. And if you consider the 22 years of sorrow that Jacob has endured, believing that his son had been torn to shreds by an animal, to now find that he's alive and well and in a position to bless and preserve the people of God and the nations, and now here he is face to face. It's a monumental moment for both of them. 
And by the way, the fifth scene of Joseph weeping. We're just keeping track of that. We'll come back to that later in our series and make note of that. But the fifth time that we see Joseph weep, he falls onto the neck of his father and weeps on him for a good while, it says. And then Jacob says, now let me die. I'm satisfied, right? We might say, now I can die happy, right? I never thought this day would come. It has come. I am satisfied. Now that he's been reunited with his father, Joseph turns his attention pretty quickly to the matter at hand, getting his family settled in the land of Goshen. He told his brothers about Goshen in chapter 45 before he sent them back to get uh, their father. He said, I want you to settle in the land of Goshen because it's a good land, a rich land for our herds and livestock. And so this is what's in his mind. And he has some strategic advice for his father and brothers as they prepare to meet Pharaoh. All right. So look at verses 31 to 34 as Joseph prepares his family. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. All right. So Joseph wants his family to settle in Goshen, which he's already told them. And he knows that this land will be sufficient for their needs as shepherds, and there will be plenty to provide for their whole family. And Joseph knows Egyptian culture well enough by now to know that Pharaoh will be amenable to giving Goshen to his family when he learns that they are all shepherds, because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. All right, so it turns out that Egyptians are grossed out by shepherds, and that's going to be to our benefit. So when you say to them, we're shepherds and we always have been, he's going to go, sure, Goshen sounds great. Because Goshen, here's the, ge geographically speaking, is a little bit removed from the central land of Egypt. It's on the eastern border of the kingdom of Egypt, just to the south, in fact, of Canaan, the promised land. And so we'll talk a little bit more about the strategy of that later. But because Goshen is not really right in the middle, right in the hub of Egyptian life, it's a little bit like, oh yeah, those shepherd people can go live over there, and they're kind of out of our hair a little bit. That's kind of, I think, the, the attitude that, that Pharaoh and the Egyptian people might have. And Joseph sort of plays on that strategically. Let's just say, hey, we're shepherds, we want to be in the shepherding land, and I think he'll be cool with that. And so he tells him, here's what you're going to say. He's going to ask you, what is your occupation? I want you to say, we are shepherds, we have always been shepherds, us and our fathers, and you're already there. Like When they came, he led them to Goshen. So they're at least temporarily kind of lodging there. And so Joseph has this plan when Pharaoh asks him, well, they're already there. It's, there's plenty of uh, grass and land for our, past, for our pastures and our, our, our herds. And so leave it, let, us, let us be there. And so the next thing that happens is Joseph's brothers appear before Pharaoh. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. 
Already done, already there, hanging out. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. We're not given any comment or context about why he only chose five and why he chose the five that he did. Perhaps they're the most impressive among the brothers. Not sure. He wants to make a good impression. So he brings these five brothers and presents them to Pharaoh. Verse 3. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Like clockwork. And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So he even says, hey, I'll give you a job. If you want to shepherd my livestock too, go for it. But Pharaoh is amenable to this plan. It goes basically exactly like Joseph predicted it would. He's going to ask you what your occupation is. Tell him you're shepherds. When you say that, he's going to say, sure, Goshen is great. And that's exactly what happens. And so... Now they've been given this green light. Pharaoh very graciously offering them the best of the land. Now, I don't know if that means you could go anywhere you want, but if Goshen is what you want, then sure. It might actually mean that he regards Goshen as the best of the land, knowing that it is rich in the resources for pasturing these flocks. Not sure. But at any rate, he graciously agrees. Yes, you may settle in the land of Goshen. Make it your own home. And so the brothers have passed the test. And Pharaoh has given them the green light, and now it's time for Pharaoh to meet Joseph's father. And something really unexpected happens here that we should not gloss over. Let's look at verses 7 through 10, and we'll pause after 10. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. All right, a couple of things. First of all, we get Jacob's sort of description of his own life, and it's not very rosy. It's kind of a downer, right? Hey, how old are you? Well, I'm 130 years, and let me tell you, they've been bad, right? It's been few and evil, he says. Now, most of us wouldn't regard 130 years as few days. That's like a lot of evil days. But he hasn't lived as long to this point as his fathers had, and it sounds like he kind of expects that he won't. Right? I probably don't have a whole lot of years left in me. And maybe he's kind of glad about that. I don't really want to stick around any longer. I'm just kind of tired of being alive on planet Earth. That's kind of a, the vibe you get from Jacob. He refers to his life as a sojourning. Right? The, years of the, day, the days of the years of my sojourning. Which points to what? This isn't home. This isn't where I belong. I, I never really arrived at home. And his days have been few and evil, marked with sorrow and grief, evil perpetrated against him, and maybe he's even recognizing evil that he's perpetrated against others. Maybe all the talk about his brothers or his sons deceiving him about Joseph's fate all those years ago has him thinking back on his own past and remembering, you know, I 
was pretty treacherous toward my own brother and deceitful toward my own father. And there were times and ways that I could have and should have been more trusting of God, and I was slow to believe his promises. So maybe there's a self-reflection here, not just that life has been hard, but I have contributed to the difficulty of my life by my own choices. And he seems to connect the relative shortness of his life, compared to Abraham and Isaac, to his deep sorrows. Uh, and he's, he's talked about death a lot. Every time he's having a conversation with the sons that we've seen, he's talking about how he's going to go down to Sheol in sorrow, and if, if Benjamin were to be lost, I would die from grief. And like, He's been talking about dying for a long time. And now here he is in front of Pharaoh, and when he says, how long has your life been? How old are you? His answer is, man, it's been hard and I am sad and ready to move on. That's kind of the, the tone here. But there's something more important than just this vibe that you get from Jacob and the way he thinks about his own life. There's something more important that he does twice. Did you notice it? Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now, the reason that's unexpected is because, culturally speaking, the greater blesses the weaker. In this conversation, you have the ruler of the world's superpower and a sad, decrepit old man with 70 descendants to his name. It would not be surprising at all for the reader to find Pharaoh blessing Jacob. But what happens is Jacob blesses Pharaoh. In fact, he does it twice. In verse 7, at the beginning of this conversation, he enters where Pharaoh is, and it says he blessed Pharaoh, and then again as he is departing, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and then left the presence of Pharaoh. So beyond just it being culturally weird, and I don't know if Pharaoh and other guys are scratching their heads, why did he just bless you? That didn't make any sense. Behind, beyond it just being weird, what is the significance of this? I can think of at least two things. Number one, we're reminded here that greatness is defined by God, not by the world. God's not impressed by the power and magnitude of the kingdom of Egypt. He's not like, wow, if only I could get Pharaoh's blessing, then I'd really be in, uh, have it made in the shade, right? Greatness is not who has more money, more power, more prestige. It's who does Yahweh choose? It's who will honor and serve Yahweh? So by God's reckoning, Jacob is definitively greater than Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't serve Yahweh. He doesn't even really believe in him. He's been kind to Joseph, and we're glad for that. We see God's blessing in that. Then he doesn't worship Yahweh. Jacob is God's chosen instrument to be the progenitor of the nation of Israel, his covenant people. And so Jacob is the one who God regards as the greater. So when Jacob blesses Pharaoh, in God's economy, it is the greater blessing the lesser. But maybe even more significantly than that, I think this is an obvious allusion to Genesis 12, 3. Again, keeping the context of Genesis in mind, all the way back in chapter 12, when God appeared to Abram, before he changed his name to Abraham, and he told him, I will make you a great nation, and through you, what? All the families of the earth would be blessed, right? 
Abraham and his family would be a blessing to the nations. That's always been a part of the covenant promises of Yahweh to Abraham and his family. And here is a tangible, literal fulfillment. Here is Jacob, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, literally blessing the nations in blessing Pharaoh. And pay attention, that's not the last that we'll see of the blessing of the nations in Joseph's story. Well, so father and son have been reunited. Pharaoh has offered the best of the land to Joseph's family. Joseph has stood before Pharaoh and pronounced blessing upon him. And now this chapter of the narrative concludes with a little summary in verses 11 and 12. Look at those two verses. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now, the land of Ramesses here might give you pause. It's probably a later name that was given to the same region, and so the author here identifies the land by the name that would have been more common to his readers at the time. That sort of thing happens pretty frequently, but we're, we're not exactly sure what that means. But nevertheless, Ramesses and Goshen are clearly the same place because it says, as Pharaoh had commanded. So this is where he told them to go. So they have settled in the land of Goshen, and what we see here is Joseph providing for his family, that is providing for the covenant people of God. He provides them with land. He provides them with food to keep the promised seed alive, to preserve for you a remnant, as he said to his brothers back in chapter 45. And so again, we see the wise, meticulous providence of God on display. The wickedness perpetrated against Joseph by his brothers all those years ago has led ultimately to the family of Abraham being safely settled in a new lush land where they can not only scrape by and ride out the famine's remaining years, but where they will grow into a great nation that Yahweh has been promising since chapter 12. And it's exactly for this reason that Goshen is a perfect spot for Israel to settle. As I said earlier, it's on the eastern edge of the Egyptian empire, bordering Canaan to the south. And so its relative distance from the center of Egyptian life and culture will allow the people of Israel to live distinctly from Egypt. They're not so caught up in the Egyptian culture and religion and practices. They're kind of out on their own and can do as they want. And so God can lead and govern his people largely separate from the rest of the empire of Egypt where they are. So Goshen is technically the land of Egypt, but it's out in a corner kind of, and they can be distinct from the people of Egypt, which is so important in the work that God is doing in establishing this nation. And secondly, its proximity to Canaan will be strategic in Israel's eventual exodus from Egypt as they will be poised to enter the land directly. Now, we know that there are bumps in the road along the way there, but the land of Goshen to the east of Egypt and just to the south of Canaan is the perfect spot 
for the people of Israel to grow into a nation, living distinctly from the Egyptians and ready to exit for the promised land when the time comes. God's providence and wisdom are clearly on display, and he has used Joseph over and over again to set this all up. And he's given Joseph favor with Pharaoh in order for these plans to all work out. And so this portion of the story ends with Israel and all of his descendants settling in the land of Goshen. You see, Yahweh demanded that his covenant people remain distinct from the world, different from the godless nations surrounding them. We've already seen in the story of Genesis some intermarriage and pagan idolatry among Abraham's family in Canaan. So we know that the danger here is real. And it's not because ethnic intermarriage is some bad thing. It's because God is trying to preserve the religious identity of this people in this time. And he knows that as they intermarry with these pagan, idol-worshiping Canaanites, they're going to begin worshiping those false gods as well. And so he's called his people from the beginning to live distinctly, to be holy, that is set apart from the nations around them. And he set them up in the land of Goshen on the, east, the east, uh, eastern outskirts of the kingdom of Egypt so they might live and develop into a distinct nation honoring and following Yahweh despite the idolatry of the surrounding culture. And if that doesn't sound a little bit like what God intends for his people today, then I don't know what would. Though we live under a new covenant, to be sure, in Jesus Christ, our calling is essentially the same. Jesus calls his church to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, under this new covenant, God's people are no longer bound by a national or ethnic identity, so the call is not to separate ourselves from the world and organize into little cloisters of Christian society that are removed from our neighbors, right? The monastery is not the answer. But the only way to do that, excuse me, we we are to live among our neighbors, not removing ourselves from them. We're to live among our neighbors and display the glory and goodness of God. God among them. But the only way to do that is if we remain distinct from them, because if we look just like them, we're not really displaying God to them, are we? So we have to remain distinct somehow and yet living among them. First Peter 2 tells us that the church is a holy nation, a people for his own possession called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are citizens of a nation with its own ruler, governed by his word, and marked off from the world, not by a national or ethnic boundary, but by the ordinances of baptism and communion. That's how we mark somebody off as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You belong to Christ. You belong in this family. You serve that king. This is what we do in the church. We mark one another off in these ways. Not to say we can't live among our neighbors, but to say as we are living among our neighbors, we must remain true to the new identity that we have as followers of Jesus Christ and as members of his family, citizens in his kingdom. To the extent that we neglect or minimize our responsibility to this covenant community, we endanger the integrity not only of our own walks with God, but the purity of the church's witness to the world. 
The story of Genesis is the story of God's establishing for himself a covenant people that he might dwell with them and bless them. And that story is continued today in the church where Jesus rules over us by his word and forges among us the life of God in love, joy, and peace for the building of his kingdom and the blessing of the nations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your plan to create for yourself a distinct people, redeemed by your grace and set apart for your holy purposes in this world. We thank you for the way we see that playing out in the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph and of Jacob's family. And we thank you that that story is continuing and that you've invited us to be a part of this story. Indeed, you have called us to yourself. You've summoned us as citizens of King Jesus and his kingdom. And we pray that you will give us the faith and the courage to live rightly in this world as representatives, as ambassadors of Christ and his kingdom. We pray that we would be those who shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We pray that we would be the kind of community where we love and serve and teach and admonish and encourage and exhort one another to remain true to our King, Jesus Christ. Where we help one another to walk along the difficult path, this sojourn, knowing that at times the days feel few and evil. Grant us the courage and the faith to walk side by side. Confident in your ability to safely preserve us and carry us home. And along the way, Lord, grant us the courage and the grace to invite others along for the journey. To share this pilgrimage through this life to the new heavenly home to which you are calling us, which you have established and are keeping for us even now. Be glorified in us as we journey with you. In Christ's name, amen.